2: I'm proud of our team. I'm proud of our messengers over here, and I'm very proud of the message. I'm very proud of all lives can't matter until black lives matter video that we did early on that when I think had a very positive impact, it was something we did together as a team. This is something that the team decided to do together as a team. So I'm very proud and supportive of what they are trying to say uh, in a peaceful and intelligent way.
3: That's the voice of Nick Saban, the championship-winning coach of the Alabama Crimson Tide. He's speaking at a Black Lives Matter event in Tuscaloosa. He's standing in front of the same schoolhouse door that George Wallace stood in more than 50 years ago trying to block integration at the school.
1: An SEC football coach participating in a Black Lives Matter march is something that would have seemed unthinkable even a few years ago. And it's not just Saban. We've seen coaches around the league at these rallies.
3: Football is religion in the South, to quote the cliche, and a certain sect of fans and the establishment have always tried to separate
1: that religion from politics. But that's a tall order in 2020, when politics affect whether games can be safely played, when players and coaches alike wrestle with systemic racism and police brutality, and when the president of the United States chooses sports as well as a political football, and when a former football coach is pursuing a seat in the United States Senate.
3: Welcome to The Record Interview. I'm R.L.
1: Nave. And I'm John Hammondtree.
3: And today we're talking about the politics of football, the historic movements led by athletes and the slow change of major institutions like the SEC and the NCAA.
1: We spoke with John Talty, Senior Sports Editor for AL.com and head of their SEC Insider brand, and Kiese Lehman, author of the highly acclaimed memoir, Heavy, and an English professor at the University of Mississippi. They
3: explain where athletes and coaches fit in broader social movements, how football may have changed for good, and the work that still needs to be done to move the ball forward.
1: Now we're talking football and racial justice, y'all. So you may hear some language thrown around that may not be suitable if you've got your kids or your grandmama in the car. Well Let's go ahead and get started with John Talty on this week's episode of The Wreckin Interview. All right, John Talty, thank you for coming on The Wrecking Interview. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm a little privy to what you get to do at AL.com, and I know it's never been a weirder time to be a sports fan, but <laughs> I'm sure it's never been a stranger time to be a college football reporter and editor either.
2: Yeah, it's it's been probably the most unique six months, I would say, of my career, and just all the different facets of, you know, this story, how the coronavirus has impacted all of it, but then just all the different kind of people that have popped up, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit, but just such a really... Unique and then also bizarre kind of last six months of just how college sports have been impacted.
1: Well, and there's always been this effort by a lot of pundits and reporters, et cetera, to stick to sports and to try to keep politics and other issues outside of sports even though, you know, that that is impossible. But it's particularly impossible right now with the intersection of the coronavirus pandemic like you mentioned, but also the Black Lives Matter movement and the George Floyd protest. And we have seen, you know, everyone from the president to Nick Saban make statements on one side or the other about this moment in time. Nick Saban of course joining a Black Lives Matter march and Donald Trump saying that he had personally called the uh, head of the Big Ten to try to get them to bring football back. Is it impossible to take politics out of sports moving forward, do you think?
2: Well, yeah, especially if politicians are going to continue to insert themselves in sports. You know, there's no way of covering what we do in college football right now without mentioning these things. You know, when the president personally involves himself in trying to get Big Ten football back, when you have, you know, governors and states across the country, either publicly advocating for sports to come back or making decisions at the high school level about not having, you know, high school football this fall or making decisions as to how many fans can attend games this fall. You know, we've seen a lot more government and politician involvement than what we typically have when it comes to college football. And so, yeah, I mean, it's impossible. I mean, there's no way, you know, you can really, I think, stick to only sports because there's so much overlap right now. And, you know, you hit on the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, certainly that's a politicized issue. Certainly there are people who support it. There are people who are very against it. It's a hot-button issue, as we would say. And, you know, there's some people that probably don't want to see coverage of it. But are you not going to cover Nick Saban leading a march on it? Are you not going to cover Alabama football players speaking out about it? I mean, it's become a situation where in order to do our jobs properly, we have to write about these things. We have to talk about these things. And so I think that does frustrate some sports fans who look at sports as kind of this safe space where they don't have to think about the rest of the world. But again, when we have our president personally trying to get involved in college football, there's really no way of avoiding it anymore.
1: Well, and it also seems like this year in particular, We're starting to see college football players and college athletes in general recognize the leverage and the power that they have, in part because of the health concerns of playing during a pandemic, and then also, you know, using their voice to speak up on issues like racial equality. We saw that a little bit in the wake of the Ferguson protests, some Missouri players getting involved with protests there on campus. But now it seems like we're seeing it across the entire SEC. I mean, everybody from Lane Kiffin to Dabo Sweeney have had to make statements to the effect of Black Lives Matter. Some have alleged that as a recruiting tactic, and some say that players and coaches genuinely are coming together on this. What's your take on how genuine the SEC and the participating schools commitment to racial equality is?
2: Yeah, I think it's probably you just have to look at it on a case by case basis. I think, you know, Nick Saban has been very genuine. I think when he has weighed in on these topics, it seems to come from a very smart, logical perspective. Some people probably are doing it just because they know they have to, and there's a recruiting component. You know, I think you can look back to after the George Ford situation and we started seeing protests pop up across America, the statements and comments that coaches made after that kind of ran the gamut. You saw some people come from a very genuine place. Some people come from a, you know, like really touching place. Other people you saw, essentially put out cookie cutter statements, you know, let's quote Martin Luther King, talking about how we all need to talk together, boom, tweet it out, done. And so <laughs> it's just, it's all kind of over the place. And so I think, I think that Auburn AD, Alan Green has done a great job of speaking on it. I think Gus, especially early on, did a very good job talking about it. You mentioned Lane Kiffin, who I think has been out in front at Ole Miss. You know, we've seen Jeremy Pruitt do things, you know, there, it's kind of all over the place, but I think for the most part, especially when at a lot of these schools, the majority of the players are black, that they kind of have to understand those issues in order to be able to reach their players and reach their team. And so I think you're seeing predominantly white head coaches really kind of try to do some, you know, learning and try to better understand what's going on. And so I think for the most part, at least, People are genuine in trying to better understand the issue.
1: And then we have seen players in some of the leagues, Pac 12, Big 10, banding together and putting out statements demanding more, whether it's demanding more transparency in health screening for COVID, better health insurance, in some cases, compensation. At some point, players from all of the leagues got involved with that. And it seemed like, you know, for 48 hours, maybe that there was going to be kind of this real crisis point for the NCAA. Players quickly backed off on that. I mean, Najee Harris said, Oh no, we'd we'd play. What happened in that 48-hour window that led from players really asserting themselves to the league reasserting control?
2: Well, I think for some of them, you know, the decision just got kind of taken out of their hands, you know, and we saw both the Big Ten and Pac-12. I think it was even, I think it was the day after a lot of that stuff popped up, particularly, you know, Trevor Lawrence just basically make the decision, hey, we're canceling the fall season. And so you've still seen players, uh, particularly the Big Ten, try to exert their influence. We've seen you know, a group of Nebraska players suing the Big Ten uh, to try to get more information about the decision-making process behind canceling the season. I think ultimately we're seeing a rise in influence of the players, but I don't think we've seen them go all the way yet. I mean, the biggest thing that would happen, in my opinion, Is if a bunch of them banded together and said they're going to boycott the season. I think that would probably accomplish the most for them if they were to do that. If Trevor Lawrence and Clemson all decided, you know what, like we're just not going to play this year. But ultimately that's one of those things where it would probably be a short-term loss for all those players for potentially a long-term win. And when you have a limited window in college as it is, it's very hard for them to actually do that. It's easy for people like me to say, Hey, this would accomplish a lot, but you know, if you're Trevor Lawrence and this is your last year of college football, like it's hard to potentially give that all up for, you know, a greater cause. So I think you're going to see more and more players, though, exerting their influence. I think they've realized in the last, you know, four or five months that they have a lot more power than they maybe originally realized. And, you know, they can continue to exert that in different areas. But I still think, you know, there's still a long way to go. I mean, we all kind of know that players still aren't being paid. And so until we start accomplishing some of those things, there's still a lot that
1: can be done. Well, we've also seen players exert their power outside of sports, you know, in Mississippi, Ole Miss players and the Mississippi State players and the SEC itself were were pretty instrumental in the state finally removing the Confederate flag as part of its state flag.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's something that, you know, people in Mississippi have been working on for a very long time. And so, you know, I want to be careful about not giving all the credit just to one person. But, you know, certainly, I think, it was probably at a point where it could happen soon. And then I think, you know, whether it was Kylan Hill or, you know, DNCAA, Greg Sankey, all coming out with their statements and really cranking up the pressure, I think it capitalized on a moment in using sports, which is certainly very important in Mississippi. You know, I spent two years in Mississippi covering college sports, and so I know how important, you know, the SEC is. And, you know, for them – one of the big things I think was you know the fact that the NCA threatened that they wouldn't be able to host any you know, tournaments there, which they already was to some extent happening, but that would have meant most importantly in Mississippi that they weren't going to be able to have you know baseball regionals, and that's very important in the state of Mississippi that Ole Miss and Mississippi State can possibly host those, and so I think that kind of pushed people that maybe didn't want to do it over the finish line to try to make something happen, and I think to your point, you know, this is a, another great example of know, people realizing that hey, we have power, you know, people care about what we say and you know, people care about what we do, and we can use that to try to push people who to this point have been very resistant about changing this thing. And so that I think really kind of pushed maybe people that were holding out and thought that they could, you know, maybe not have to do anything for at least a couple more years to kind of speed things up and say, all right, we gotta we gotta change this now.
1: You wrote a piece earlier this year about the information war surrounding coronavirus, you know, trying to control the narrative in order to preserve the football season. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned in that process? And then maybe what you're seeing right now on campuses like Alabama, for example, where we are seeing huge numbers of students test positive for COVID?
2: Yeah, I think what we've seen is that people are going to essentially, you know, I don't think this is unique to college football, but they're going to try to work Uh, In their own self interest, regardless of whether it's necessarily the right thing to do. And so I think what we saw, particularly in college sports for months, is that, you know, deep down, when you talk to some of these people privately, you know, they were very concerned, but they didn't want to put out a kind of concerned outlook, because they were afraid of how it could impact things. So you know, after, especially after Curb Street kind of rang the you know, alarm bell about how there might not be college sports this fall. You, know, you saw ADs kind of panicking and very worried that, hey, if I come out and say, I don't think football is going to happen this fall, well, then why is anybody going to buy tickets? Why is anybody going to donate? You know, all this different money that I basically need to kind of keep my department afloat you know, is going to start drying up. And I think you've already seen some of the ramifications of that in which were you know, Texas the other day you know, furloughing a significant amount of people. The NCA, I think, is throwing basically its entire staff for a period of either from three to eight weeks, and so there was a lot of money at stake. And so I think you saw people basically trying to protect that money by potentially, you know, being overly optimistic, even if deep down they didn't necessarily believe it. I think what we've seen on college campuses recently is that I think deep down a lot of them knew it wasn't going to work, but they needed that money. You know, they needed the deposit money. They needed students to get on campus to get, you know, the dorm money, to get all the room and board, all that kind of stuff. And so you're now seeing kind of a pushback. And so, I mean, again, maybe I'm just overly skeptical, but this is playing out kind of how I expected it to play out that, you know, you saw a period of time, I think it was May and June around the time when people, you know, incoming freshmen had to kind of turn in their deposit checks. You saw them talk about how they're going to have in-person learning and Football is going to happen and all those lovely things that we all get excited about. And then as time has gone on and things have gotten closer and closer, you're seeing schools pull back and pull back and pull back. You're seeing, you know, more and more either go to online only or hybrid, all these different things. And it's all happening after basically they already got there. And so I think you're seeing, you know, money is driving a lot of these decisions, sometimes to the detriment of, you know, students and players and all those other
1: things. Well, and it's not even just the moneyed interests of the universities themselves. I mean, because they are public universities, you have the moneyed interests of the state, you have the moneyed interests of cities like Tuscaloosa and Auburn, you have at least the potential for a lot of people to have a stake in making sure that the narrative suggests that everything's fine.
2: Yeah, and you're continuing to see that. And you made a great point there, John, that I mean, we've already heard from various different business owners in towns like tuscaloosa and auburn that you know they might lose their business if there's no students this fall or there's no football this fall all those different things that drive you know hundreds of millions of dollars in our state and so there's there's a lot at stake certainly in that regard what we're seeing right now is you know i think in some ways a conflict kind of a you have these kind of competing narratives that you you have one in which like we're seeing national headlines come out of the university of Alabama. Like, look at these numbers. These are crazy. And that yet you still have people who are directly involved saying, you know what, it's still safe. We still feel good about this. And so I have long believed that when push came to shove, there's always someone out there that you can put out in front of a microphone to defend your point. And I think that's what we're seeing more and more of now that, you know, I'd heard, especially when it came to college sports, like, you know, if we see big outbreaks on campuses, like we're going to have to shut it down. Well, guess what? we're seeing big outbreaks on campuses and then we're not shutting down college football. So I think we just reached the point where I was like, you know what, we're going ahead no matter what, even if the numbers tell us otherwise. And so we'll throw out somebody who says it still feels safe. Great. Let's keep on moving. And that's, I think what we're seeing, you know, Iowa, North Carolina, I think Georgia had a big one. There's all these big schools who have these big you know, coronavirus positive numbers, and yet they're still going ahead with college sports, which is contrary to what a lot of those leaders were saying, you know, a few months ago.
1: One of those leaders is, of course, a former college football coach himself, or I guess one of those aspiring leaders. This is the first time we've ever seen a former coach run for high office in the state of Alabama. But coach Tommy Tuberville obviously has a long connection in the state as the Auburn football coach. He did manage to win Tuscaloosa County during the uh, runoff election against Jeff Sessions. So there is at least some indication that he can win some Alabama fans, even <laughs> even those who remember him for fear of the thumb. What kind of relationship is there going to be between football and politics on the politics side. We've talked a little bit about it on the football side, but will people's football passions and fandom affect how they vote in November, you think?
2: I certainly think that politicians are angling for that. You know, you've seen we mentioned Trump already. Clearly, Trump is making it into a political issue, You know, essentially trying to angle in the Midwest that, hey, I'm trying to do everything possible to try to get you college football this fall. And it's those Democrat governors who aren't allowing it to happen. On the flip side, you've seen Joe Biden try to make basically the opposite argument that the reason why you are not having Big Ten football this fall is because of Donald Trump's you know, poor coronavirus response. So just right there, they're using football in a very political way. I think certainly in Alabama, you know, Tuberville is just going to align himself with Trump and has already kind of come out against the Big Ten and Pac-12 decisions. He's, you know, taking a very popular stance in the state of Alabama of saying, I want football to happen. Well, you know, a lot of people here want football to happen. And so I think, Trump and Tuberville and other you know, Republican politicians who are going to run off those points, I think, very much appeals to a lot of people. You know, in this state and other states who maybe don't think the coronavirus is quite as serious as some other people do, or just in general think, even if it is a serious thing, that shouldn't be a reason why we don't have high school or college football this fall. And so, I think it's going to be an issue that continues to pop up. I think that we've seen. President Trump used college football multiple times. I mean, he came obviously to that big Alabama LSU game. You know, Tubberville was there. So was his opponent, Doug Jones. And so everybody was kind of using that game as a potential political opportunity to score some points with fans down there. He's been to national championship games. Like, he is probably most aligned with college sports out of college football out of all the different sports. He's spoken out against the NFL and the NBA and all these other sports. Like, He's not really speaking out against college football, certainly not as a whole. He's gone after a few specific conferences like the Big Ten, but he's not attacking the SEC, and I don't expect him to. And he's doing that for a reason. He knows that his base is SEC fans, and he needs to prop them up. So I think in the next couple months, we will see quite a few politicians uh, come through this state and reference the ongoing college football debate uh, within their kind of political talking points. And I think that, you know, I've talked to some different you know, political strategists in the past about it. I don't know if it's going to sway an election or anything like that, but certainly I think it could have an impact in some of those Midwest swing states.
1: I've reached out to Tommy Tuberville for interviews for this show and for for other interviews this year. I will continue to reach out to him. So far, their campaign has generally made it a policy to not speak to press who are not immediately friendly to their beliefs. So what can you tell us from a sports coverage standpoint about who Tuberville is and how he might be as a senator?
2: He is a guy who is very entertaining. He's always been a pretty good quote. He I think in the grand scheme of things, you know, an average football coach, I guess you could say he has done some sketchy things along the way. I mean, clearly the the pine box comment is is pretty infamous. Uh, what he did at Texas Tech, uh, I think, was pretty embarrassing. Honestly, he's at a recruit dinner with a bunch of you know recruits, and then you know takes a call and decides to accept the head coaching job at Cincinnati and leaves without even telling the recruits at the dinner. I mean, I think that kind of speaks to you know who Tommy is, and so he's going to pander to his base. He's going to tell you what you want to hear, and he'll probably end up winning in the state of Alabama. But do I think he is going to be a notable senator? No, because I think he's not someone who has shown an ability to work with other people, which, as you well know, is is pretty important once you actually get to D.C.
1: John, do you have a prediction for how many games will actually be played this season? Do you think we were going to have a full college football season? You
2: know, I think that's the, the billion-dollar question. I mean, I think I'm confident we will have some games. I don't know if we'll have all of them, but this is the one thing that I'll say. The fact that the SEC scheduled its big rivalry games, you know, to the normal kind of weekend that they have, you know, having uh, the Iron Bowl the week of Thanksgiving. I think indicates that they are confident they can get to that point. Because if you thought that you couldn't get there, you would move that game up because it's so important. So whether that ends up happening, you know, I think is anyone's guess. You know, I think it's ultimately going to be up to the virus. But to me, that indicates that the SEC feels pretty strongly about its plan, that they're going to be able to at least get through the regular season. And so we will all be watching very eagerly to see if they can get there.
1: Coming up after the break, award-winning author Kiese Lehman describes what life is like in a college football town in the middle of a pandemic, and where college athletes fit in the broad picture of justice movements.
0: For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic.
3: When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is
1: my mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me
3: we didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases
0: we're gonna be there you know we may be the last one standing i hope that's not the case but we're committed to, to being open outbreak alabama stories from a pandemic search outbreak alabama on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts
1: All right, Kiese Lehman, thanks for coming on The
0: Reckon Interview. Hey, John, thank you for having me here.
1: We just heard a big picture overview from our reporter, John Talty about a lot of the changes we're seeing in college football this fall. But we're kind of curious about what that looks like in practice. The University of Mississippi, in particular, has been the center of all of these issues that have dominated the summer, from the Confederate monument debate, to the state removing its flag because it contained the Confederate flag, Black Lives Matter rallies featuring Lane Kiffin, and even the decision to return to in-person classes during a pandemic and, you know, the SEC's decision to move forward with a football season. What has been your experience in Oxford
0: as a faculty member? I mean, I'll start with what makes me happy. I mean, one of my experiences is watching these young people organize and push back against things that they experience, against things their parents, their great grandparents. You know, like when you watch young people try to change an institution in a town, you can't help but feel inspired. So it's great to watch that happen. I think it's sad that the football team specifically is sort of like the economic engine of Oxford, Mississippi. And when they burst out of the preconceived notion of what football players should do, which is you know, when they walk from campus to the monument downtown at the square, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Oxford folks, a lot of Ole Miss people were not happy with them. And so, you know, just on a sports level and a human level, I just I just worry about what happens if those dudes make it to the season. I worry about the health, but also worry about what happens if they make it and they start losing. Because people here just, I don't know, man, that football shit is like tribal and, and, it's, and they're not being, they're not being kind to the entity that sort of like makes it so we all can have a, a paycheck conversely, I just don't think they should be playing. You know, it's not my place to say. I just don't think the university has done the things that they need to do to make it safe.
1: Yeah, I live in Tuscaloosa. And I mean, our economy is very similar to Oxford. It's built almost exclusively around football. And, you know, it's hard not to say that The decision to have a football season has been a big driver for a lot of decisions that the mayor has made, a lot of decisions that the university has made. I mean, the mayor says explicitly, you know, we need to behave the right way so that we can have football in the fall. Thousands of jobs would be lost if we don't. But that does put these players, you know, these unpaid players kind of in a predicament where they have to play in order to support their community. And we are seeing some players trying to opt out and some leagues opting out, but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen in places like Oxford and and Tuscaloosa. I mean, we are seeing players feel more empowered to make their decisions and to push for what they believe in, and, and we should see more of that going forward. But is the cat kind of out of the bag in terms of amateur sports versus pro sports?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the cat's been out of the bag. And I think, I mean, what's interesting is that the cat's out of the bag just like the cat's out of the bag with COVID, right? We know that University of Alabama, we know University of Mississippi are like, huge vectors for COVID and there's a lot of reasons for that but I think what's interesting is like it didn't have to be this way like if you really wanted to bring kids back or if you really wanted to have football I just think there are things I mean I can't speak about Alabama but I think there are things University of Mississippi could have done and what they're doing now is they're doing the thing I think the worst of us always do which is patting ourselves on the back because it could have been so much worse so like you know we have like three or 400 kids who have COVID What they do here is we, you know, pat ourselves on the back because presumably none of them have been hospitalized. But they don't talk about how, like, when you go to the hospital, if you're a young person, at least around here, sometimes they turn you away if you're too young because they say, yeah, you might have COVID, but we can't admit you because we have to save these beds for, like, older people with underlying conditions. So I just think the cat is out the bag. I think anybody with a brain understands that these athletic unpaid workers are being exploited if you look at what they bring versus what they get, places like this, you know, they brought the kids back so they could have football. And I want people to eat. I want people to be able to have, have jobs and whatnot, but like the institution has to go out of its way to make, should go out of its way to make things safe. And when you don't do that, you don't bring kids back. And I don't think we can see that. Uh, this is the thing the shit, the, the Corona shit is so new. I don't think we understand what the long-term effects of it are on all people's bodies, but definitely even on young people's bodies. So Who knows what the long term effects are? You know, I just think they need to pay these people, these young workers, what they're worth and then let these paid workers make the decision about what they do.
3: Yeah, there was a report out this week that looked at college and basketball revenues in in the SEC, for example, and talked about how like these young athletes are not just like subsidizing the salaries of the coaches and the programs. But they're also subsidizing these like non-revenue sports that are mostly played by affluent white students. But then we talk, you know, the way we frame the conversation is around like we're giving you scholarships, like it's this altruistic thing. And so I know you mentor a lot of students. I'm just wondering, like, do you have a sense of do people feel like they're carrying a heavy burden, you know, especially these these student
0: athletes? Oh, most definitely. They're carrying a heavy burden. You know what I mean? Like. I mean, again, I can't speak for all of, all of them, and I don't, don't want to do that, but the student workers, athletes that I talk to feel that they have an obligation to play, right? These are kids who've been playing their whole lives, obligation to play, but they also feel like there's a new obligation to protest, and it's hard having these conversations with, with young people in a way, because you don't want to, in, in some way, it's not my business. Like, if you don't want to advocate for yourself to be paid, that's all, you know, I can't do anything about that. But on the flip side, I will say that there are some not just student athletes and student workers, but like there's some members of the Ole Miss football team who are extremely valued, who are not just talking about protesting racial violence and protesting to get the Confederate monument down, but who really just are really on the verge of protesting to be paid fair compensation for the work that they bring. And so I think I'm not saying everybody is aware and everybody wants that, but I know some players on that team definitely want that. And they just, and and it's so fucked up, like they deserve it. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's so insane that we're still talking about amateurism with people who bring in to this community, like hundreds of millions of dollars total. You know what I mean? The thing about when, when football goes dead around here, that means all these people in these houses can no longer like make the money that they're used to making because so many of these people, you know, rent out their homes for the weekend. I'm sure it's like that in Tuscaloosa too, right? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, rent out parking spots, stuff like that. Yeah. You, you know, when I first got down here, I wrote for ESPN. I wrote a piece called How They in Oxford. You know, my dilemma in that piece was I was getting paid a pretty good amount of money for that. I got paid like 13 G's to write this essay. And, I, and I'm talking about money because I think when we start talking about this kind of stuff, those of us who make money off of these players need to talk about how much we're making off of these players. And I made $13,000 to write this article for ESPN, the magazine. And that was $13,000 more than those dudes can, like, make for what they bring. So it's not just I'm out here watching, I'm out here being an advocate for these players. Like, everybody else in this community, to some degree, I have eaten off of these players, right? Like, I have created art based on what they do and what they did and do and gotten money from a corporation. And I'm just saying, like, my point is, like, all, like, the the, the carnivorous ways we go in there, we dig off of these players. I think sometimes we don't talk about all the ways. Like, I've made a ton of money talking about football players who cannot get paid.
1: Yeah. And you've got other college students who might be there on scholarship. You know, let's say you're on an academic scholarship. Well, you can still turn around and go set up an Instagram or a TikTok and get paid as an influencer, you know, in Tuscaloosa or in Oxford to try to hawk Bud Light or even, you know, something like Barstool Sports or whatever. But you've got college students who are making money off of their affiliation with these universities and they can get paid for it. But at the moment, a player who actually has influence and platform, gets paid for a sponsorship or anything like that. Suddenly, they're thrown out of the league. And I think we're starting to see some movement on that issue, at least, that players should be able to make money off their likeness. Maybe not that the university will ever pay them any money, but the players should be able to go out and, you know, sell used cars or whatever in the the summer if they need to, to make some money. Hopefully, we'll see something like that. But yeah, the whole system is messed up.
3: I mean, not to be too cynical, but then, like, that opens up another like whole new realms of potential exploitation, right? That's true. (laughs) Right? And so like we, we have to be on the lookout for that as
1: well. Yeah, no, that's a good point. As far as players using their platform to get something done, I know this is a school down the road and maybe it's bad news there in Oxford, but, you know, a lot of people, I spoke with Paul Feinbaum a few weeks ago and he credited Kylan Hill with being the reason that the Confederate flag was ultimately taken out of the Mississippi flag. Do you think there's any truth to that?
0: You know, that's the thing about living in Mississippi. Like, we believe in a lot of myths, you know what I'm saying? And I, I will say that brother inspired me, pushed me, not just in my writing, but pushed me just in terms of, like, cowardice, right? Like, to confront cowardice, because I think it was really hard to do what he did. And, not a but, and we have to understand that this system could not be broken. in the system that, like, upheld that Confederate flag within that Mississippi flag can couldn't be broken by one person. Like, we don't need to. Paul Feinbaum is super entertaining and, and sharp often. That's just not true, right? Like, that definitely helped. But <laughs> the SEC saying they were going to take their money out of Mississippi. The NCAA essentially saying they were going to take their money out of Mississippi. And the student protests led by organized groups and individuals like the brother, your young brother from Mississippi State are what made this happen. I don't think we need to, like, do that sort of, like, one person made it happen. That's not true. It's just not true. Yeah.
3: But I mean, like, how do you honor that, like, he did a thing? I mean, he's part of a tradition, right? And we should talk about that tradition. But, like, how do we honor the thing that he did while also saying what Bamani said? We also have to hold white supremacy accountable and hold these institutions accountable. But, like, we can also give the Young
0: Brothers some props for even daring to step out there. Major props. But what I think, like, statements like bombs do is, one they put another target on, on that young brother's like life and livelihood. And I'm saying fine. There's a target or he stepped out there There's a target already on him, but I don't think we need to act like everybody in the state was like, we're going with this flag. And then this one brother stepped out of the fucking like dust. And it was like, <laughs> I'm not playing football unless y'all, you know what I mean? And then everybody's like, Oh shit, y'all, we got to change that flag because that brother might not play football. I love that story. I'm a fiction writer. But what happened was that young brother decided not to play football, and there was already all, all these other organized movements against the flag that behind the scenes were working to get all these other entities to strip power and money from the state. And I'm saying that brother, like, is a part of a larger movement. And I, I just don't think we do him a justice when we try to make him seem like a singular figure. Like, I, I think what's dope about him is he was part of a larger movement. I don't think what's dope about him is he got the flag down. And like I think that's there's nothing diminishing in that. I think I think it's actually ironically diminishing if we act like he got it down by himself. Because it's just, that's not what happened, and it just brings too much. And we know that's not what happened, you know? But there's no way. Right, I feel you on that. I feel you on that, Ryan. Like, we can't, I'm not trying to dismiss or dis- diminish that shit at all. It took courage, and I think calculation, and that shit really helped. But We don't live in a state where one person can make an action, and then everybody, everything else is going to fall. Mississippi's Like, layers of shit are too deep for that to happen.
3: It does have layers of shit. And so, like, the thing I'm thinking about is, like, it's always been the state of Ross Barnett and the Sovereignty Commission, right? Like, Mississippi has always sacrificed its financial well-being, right? It's always left money on the table in order to, like, be who Mississippi wanted to be in a lot of ways. What do you think is different about, like, this instant, this moment— Because like, okay, they could have gave up some SEC championships. Like, who's going to go to a championship anyway? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And so like, is there something different in this climate, you know, that's like sparked something in Mississippi to finally put them on the right side of
0: history a hundred years late? I think that's a great, interesting question that I'm just going to like play with the edges of because I can't even get into like the depths of that question. But I do think Yo, I mean, we just saw the culture of Alabama leading a group of men in a Black Lives Matter protest. Do you know what I mean? Like, so what I'm saying is like the organizers in this country who have and the people, whether they're organized groups, the organizations or just individuals in their communities who fought back, Mississippi has helped create that movement, and Mississippi has fed off of that movement. But historically, Mississippi has created that movement. So that's why I just think I'm talking about if you historicize it back to like, you know, 64, 66, 68, 69, even maybe like 62. I think Mississippi historically has been a site of like, of course, like torture and complete sanctioned humiliation, but it's also been a site of organization and collective direct action that pushed back, that was, you know, sort of like simulated across the world. So I think what's different is I, I want to believe that a lot of the people in this state, including me, the people who go to Ole Miss, the players, are tapping back into, like, our organized and activist origins. But I also think one of the reasons we're doing that is because the rest of the country is. But I do believe, like, I'm that person who I can't substantiate this claim, but I think if we get it right in Mississippi, not just, like, Alabama gets it right or Arkansas or fucking New York or California, but I think if you get it right in Mississippi, the world gets it right everything changes, which is one of the reasons I think the worst of our state and the worst of this country work so hard to make sure we don't get it right. Make, work so hard to make sure workers in the state can organize. You know what I'm saying? Like, work so hard to make sure that we stay last in education, that we stay last in poverty. Because if we collectively, like, do the things we know we can do to make that shit, like, invert that shit, I think everything in the state, but also in the whole world changes. So Mississippi, you know, I'm a Mississippi supremacist. I think we're the center of all of this fucked up shit. For better or worse. Well,
1: and it's interesting how sports sometimes leads that. You know, whether it's, you know, I'll be an Alabama supremacist for a second because I don't know Mississippi athletes very well, but, you know, whether it's Jesse Owens, who was born in Alabama, raised in Ohio, but then, you know, running and defeating Nazis and racism in the Olympics in Germany. But also, and I don't know how much of this is myth, but the story has always been, I think it's 50 years ago this week, actually. That Bear Bryant was tired of losing to integrated football teams, so he scheduled a game against USC. Uh, USC was integrated, and Alabama went, all-white team, had their asses handed to them by USC. And the next year, the boosters in Tuscaloosa were like, all right, we'll we'll integrate the team. (laughs) And so football and other sports have been used in the past to maybe push Alabama's white community in ways that they otherwise wouldn't be on board with. Because it appeals to their sense of wanting to win in sports.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, no question about that. Right. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm saying. I appreciate, you know, what Ryan was trying to tease out about the brother Mississippi state is that yes. Like if the football players, Mississippi state, university of Mississippi decide that they are not going to play football at all, unless blank happens in their town. I think blank happens. You know, I I just think that's just a fact. But the blank, but I'm saying we can't get to the blank because organizing is just so hard in this state period. But also it's just hard for like 18 to 22 year old people to really like organize when they're brought to a campus told that their job is something else. And I don't think it's fair for us to put that burden on those young people like that. But yeah, and yo, athletes down here have changed the world. Like, you know, Jesse Owens, you know, absolutely. These athletes are, are changing the world. But it's just so much bullshit, fam. Like, I just, I mean, I, I just want somebody to look me in my face one day and justify how a football coach in the Mississippi, the poor state, and the union can be paid four to six million dollars. And the players who make that annual salary possible don't get shit. And I don't wanna hear nothing about no tuition or, or no scholarship. Like, I teach a lot of scholarship kids who don't bring a dime to this institution. You just have to, somebody would have to sit down and explain to me how we're paying Lane Kiffin like market price, but these kids can't even be on the market, so they don't have no price. I think it's also hard because of like the
3: weird ways, I mean, not even weird, but how memory works, right? It's like, we talk about college football, you know, in Mississippi, like <laughs> like it's the blind side, right? right or it's right. like Chuck, or, you know, like Chucky Mullins and like those kinds of stories, like we forget that, like, the thing that pushed Bear Bryant to integrate was because, like, he didn't want to get his ass handed to him by integrated teams. And, you know, even, again, I'll go back to that Bomani piece. It was like, we forget, like, how we demonize these players, like, in the moment, right? And then something happens, right, where we exalt and valorize them. But, like, that wasn't the case with Ali. You know, it wasn't the case with a lot of these folks who who took a stand, but then we look to sports as like the gray melting pot where like this is the best of our country. But in some ways, like it is like the perfect representation of our country.
1: One thing we haven't touched on yet is the president's role in politicizing a lot of this stuff. A lot of people forget that like when he first went after the NFL players, that was at a speech in Huntsville, Alabama, and he was just riffing. And all of a sudden, you know, he starts talking about beating players who have taken a knee and all of that stuff. And that kind of set off the massive NFL firestorm in response to it. I guess that was four years ago. And since then, the NFL seems to have had a massive culture shift that I think, like what you were saying, KSA, has only really been driven by the fact that the movement as a whole has been able to put pressure on the country, particularly with the George Floyd protests. But now Trump's at one point was maybe marshalling the direction of how the nfl was going to handle it now the nfl is is on the opposite side of him and trump's having to call out football at every level it seems like
0: yeah i mean i wonder how opposite side people are you know what i mean like again i'm just i'm so important that we're talking about the bottom line because you know most of those owners and, and trump are on the, are, are like they're on the same page they go to the same fucking like summer clubs and shit right like I wonder how vocal the owners are going to be when football season starts, particularly if the NBA, like they start losing viewers, you know, because I think a lot of white folks are like not watching NBA because maybe because it's in a bubble, but I think definitely because Black Lives Matter, you know, sign is right there in the middle of the court. But that's also because a lot of those NBA owners, quote unquote owners have, have taken stance. It's easy to take stances when LeBron James takes a stance, you know, LeBron wasn't Kaepernick, like it would have been, like if Tom Brady took a stand, like if Tom Brady took a stand, I think a lot of owners will come around, right? If the most popular player in your league takes a stand, what if it was the most popular white player in your league? That would be some shit. But I don't know the NFL. It's gonna be interesting to see what happens if that season even happens. But on a broader scale, I just don't know how NFL is gonna happen with COVID during like the months when they say it's gonna be the worst. They're not in a bubble. Have y'all heard about how that's gonna work out?
1: I imagine they'll play in near empty stadiums and. They can, because the players are paid, they could probably better regulate how the players are going to behave during the rest of the week. But I mean, yeah, you can't stop an NFL player from going out if he wants to. Nah.
0: I mean, I, I don't know if the rules will be any different from baseball and in baseball, the thing is like, yeah, they're real tight with each other in that dugout, but you're not really face to face with anybody the way you are in football. You know, you ain't smelling nobody's breath really unless There's like a collision at home plate, maybe, or maybe if, you know, so I don't know, fam. I just want as as little people as possible to die and suffer from this shit. But it just seems hard when the people who have the quote unquote power are just not even like secretly are saying like, it's profit over people, you dumb motherfucker. Like we make the profit is good. You know, it's just profit over people. But the fucked up thing is like the nation has been saying that. As long as I've been alive, as long as my mom been alive, as long as my grandma has been alive. So the fucked up scary thing is like what we're seeing now is just a culmination of, I think, like, ratchet evil politics. It's not new. That's what I think we got. I need to keep reminding myself this ain't new. This is what happens when you have a nation like this and a state like Mississippi.
3: They also don't realize that there's a point of diminishing returns. Like, yeah, you might get paid a little bit this year, but like if everybody gets sick. And a lot of people die and people just like won't come to campus next year, like you're going to be much worse off. And so, I mean, I, I guess that goes back to questions about like why states like Mississippi and Alabama refuse Medicaid expansion money, because like maybe there's some political benefit in the long term. But, you know, 10, 15, a generation down the road, like we're all going to be fucked. And just like, I don't know why, like why we're not like thinking along.
0: I mean, but you know, you know what I think, right? Like, I think like it's hard to even think along those lines when like when that psychology is the line, right? Like necropolitics is the line, right? Like in my state, the state always chooses that which is going to kill more black folks, but also is going to kill poor white folks, right? Like, that's our politics across the board. That's what we want. Like that necropolitics shit is like. You see it in the in the healthcare. You see it now with COVID. I think you see it ironically in schools. I think you see it like in premature deaths, not just infant mortality, but premature deaths in our state, in our region. So, I mean, I think we have proof that the decisions that our quote unquote leaders make, make like lead to like bigger casualty counts. That's not, you don't even have to do an analysis to see it. But I just think that is the politics. Like that's what these people want. And they would never say it, but that's what they want. But at the end of the day, I think you're right. What happens... <laughs> when there's no more people to like fill the team or come to a stadium or blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. But I don't think these people can be convinced to change anything. I think you gotta beat them. And that's what I think these players, in a way, connected to larger movements and larger um direct actions. I think they're saying, We're not, we're trying to beat y'all. We we understand we're not gonna convince you, but we're gonna beat you.
3: Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's like. You know, when people say, why are people voting against their own interests? And we're making an assumption that like economic well-being and security is the thing that they're interested
0: in, but they're actually interested in the thing that you're talking about. I think so. I mean, I just moved back here like four and a half years ago and I was doing some stuff in the Delta with this middle school and this high school and it was around election time. And one of the things on the ballot was like really real talk, like funding for public schools, right? And when I was there, you had the, p- the place where you went to go vote was the black fucking elementary school. These white people came and droves to this school. Like they walked through this public school that was fucking not held up the way it should have been to vote against fucking more <laughs> money for the school. Like they walked into the school. They saw all of this shit. They saw what was lacking and they voted. And, and you know, essentially they're saying, this school is not suffering enough. These kids are not suffering enough. We want them to suffer more. That's Mississippi right there. If you can have people walk into places that are fucking like dilapidated because of their desire for it to be dilapidated. And then they vote to make it even more dilapidated. Like that's, that's a different kind of evil right there, fam. We kind of got to call it what it is. And I, I mean, there's a whole lot of smart words I could use, but that shit is like pure fucking evil, fam. Like, you go into an elementary school to vote against the well-being of the kids in the elementary school. For what? You know what I'm saying? Like, why?
1: There's no good answer for it, period. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just leave our audience to answer that question for us. All right. Let's do that. <laughs> why? Tweet us your answer. Tell us why. <laughs> well, KSA, thanks so much for your time. This was a lot of fun. All right. Thank you, John. Thank y'all for having thanks, me. Thanks, man. Appreciate
3: it. And that's our show, y'all. Seriously, if you've got any solutions, we want to hear from you. Tweet at us at, at John Hammondtree and at Arl Nave. We're a few weeks into college football, and the NFL kicked off this past weekend. SEC games are still a couple weeks away, and the case numbers are still rising on campuses.
1: Got tips? Shoot us an email at reckon at al.com. And this Thursday, we're going to have a very special episode of the Reckon Interview Live. Ramsey Robinson is a former cornerback for the Crimson Tide, the Detroit Lions, and other football teams. Ramsey Robinson is a former cornerback for the Crimson Tide, the Detroit Lions, and other NFL teams. And he's currently working for the Super Bowl-winning Kansas City Chiefs. And he's going to answer your questions about what social justice conversations look like in the locker room. So join us on Reckon's Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me,
3: R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show, share it with your friends. Email it to your parents. DM it to your cousin. Text it to your spouse, make them
1: subscribe, and then leave us a review on Apple. And until next week, thanks for reckoning with us.